Welcome back to the Plantopia podcast, the plant health podcast produced by the American Phytopathological Society. I'm your host, Jim Bradeen, a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president for strategy at Colorado State University. And today I'm really excited to have a conversation with Dr. Sara Garcia Figuera. Uh, Sara received her PhD in plant pathology from UC Davis last year in 2021. And her graduate research focused on the management of Huanglong Bing or HLB of citrus. And her research leverages some tools and approaches that are unfamiliar to me and, and I suspect unfamiliar to many plant pathologists. Her research really extends beyond the classic disease triangle that describes the role of the host plant, the pathogen and the environment in plant disease development to include factors of human behavior and social science in achieving effective plant disease management. And today, Sarah is a consultant providing technical support and conducting policy analyses for agri-food clients in Europe and in the US. And you can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Figuera, that's S-A-R-A-F-I-G-U-E-R-A. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jim. Um, it's a pleasure to be part of these uh, podcast series, and I'm, I'm very happy to contribute. Excellent. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to learn more about your, your work and your approaches. And I wanted to start our conversation today um, talking a little bit about your, your career path, your academic path. Um, what degrees have you earned? And, and more importantly, how did you end up in this field of plant pathology? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, that, that's always an interesting question to ask a, a plant pathologist. Um, we all have such a different path yeah. in, into this field. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. <laughs> yeah, so I studied for my undergraduate degree, um, agricultural engineering um, in Spain at the um, Universidad Politecnica de Madrid, so the, the main engineering school in Madrid. And um, I had a really excellent professor of plant pathology during my degree, who's a, a known uh, virologist, um, Fernando Garcia Arenal. And uh, when I finished um, the course that he was teaching, which was like the typical introduction to plant pathology, um, I really liked the, the subject and he offered me uh, to work on his lab the following year, just as, an, as the usual undergraduate assistant and, and that's how I started to get into the field. In the beginning, of course, I was doing more of the usual mechanical helping and, and, and setting up trials, doing analysis. But um, after that, I did my undergraduate research project with him. And, and I thought it was a really fascinating field because um, there was the basic biology aspect, but also trying to have an impact on society to improve food security, to reduce crop losses due to diseases. So that kind of, that undergraduate experience kind of marked the rest of, of my career. And um, I worked for two years in the industry after that um, for a company in Spain that sold microbial plant biostimulants. And then I decided that I wanted to, to get a graduate degree. And, and that's when I applied 
um, for UC Davis, and, and I got there in 2016 into the plant pathology program. That, that's really fascinating. I, I wasn't aware that you've had um, industry experience as well, your academic path. And, and those experiences certainly shape our interests, right? Uh, plant pathology, uh, so many of us think of it as a discovery field. We, we need those, those research experiences or those interactions to, to really spark that, that interest. You're actually a native of Spain, is that correct? You grew up in Spain? Yeah. And you're speaking to us today from outside of Madrid. Yeah, so I was born in, in Madrid. Once I came back from the US, I, I moved to a city north of Madrid, like two hours north. So I'm back home in a sense, not exactly, but almost. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, so you've been a plant pathologist on at least two different continents, um, in, in California and in Spain, and um, certainly you're familiar with disease problems throughout Europe as well as the U.S. Can, can you comment a little bit on the similarities and, and the differences that you see? So for me, that was one of the most shocking things when I moved to California, because I had never been there uh, before. And I realized that the climate has a lot to do uh, with how the landscape is uh, set. So when I remember the, the first morning at Davis, when I biked around campus, I realized that I knew not the exact same plant species, but very similar, um, like similar family, similar genera, that the landscape kind of looked familiar, more familiar than I thought. So some of the, in the case of California, it's probably easier for a plant pathologist from Spain to relate to some of the crops and some of the most common diseases. Of course, there are diseases that are different, but the main crops are, are more or less the same. We have a lot of vineyards, um, vegetable crops. Those are relatable. <laughs> That's great. And I, my question was shaped in part by, by my own recent experiences. I, I moved from the upper Midwest of the U.S., uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, most recently Minnesota, um, where, where water is pretty plentiful and fungal diseases um, predominate. And, and now I live in Colorado, which is um, much drier and uh, viral diseases really are, are the bigger uh, challenges here. So it, it is interesting to hear the similarities um, between Spain and, and California. Um, but you know, I am reminded again of that disease triangle, that environment really does shape so much of what we, we do see in plant pathology. Yeah. Well, while, while we're talking about Spain versus um, in comparison to California, could you reflect a little bit on what it was like to experience the, the U.S. Uh, graduate system, graduate school system? It's, it's really different from the way um, graduate programs are in, in Spain and, and actually most of Europe. That wasn't something that I knew before, before I joined the program at UC Davis. In Europe, you don't have that concept of a graduate program. You usually join a, a research group and you start your dissertation right as you start. So you usually join a project that was already going on or you apply to, for funding to start a new project, but you start research from the beginning and you usually are helped by, by the PI, of course, and some other people in the lab, but you don't have that part of the experience that of the program that you have in, in the US where you start having courses with a cohort of people that are going through the same experiences that you're going 
So I think in the end, um, I really liked the, the US system. I think it gives you a really broad training in plant pathology, or at least the, at least the way the program was at UC Davis, because you don't only become an expert in the crop and the disease that you are doing your research on, but you also learn about all these other diseases, aspects from molecular plant microbe interactions, all the way to epidemiology. And you get a bit of training in, in all that so that you're more of a, what, what we used to call in the program, a well-rounded plant pathologist. At the same time, you have, to, um, you have to know that you're probably going to invest more time, more years in getting your, your PhD degree than you would in, in Europe. So there are pros and, and, and cons, but I think it's, it's a really different approach. And also um, maybe to add, uh, for me, from a personal perspective, going having a cohort and, and having a group of people that started the program at the same time as you, or maybe one year before, one year after, but people who are going through the same courses and the same experiences that you are, it makes the entire graduate school experience um, a bit easier because you, you, you're part of a team and, and you're getting help not only from your lab, but also from other labs. And as somebody who's recently gone through graduate school, what, what advice do you have for selecting um, a graduate program or a graduate mentor? I think sometimes it's more important to choose the mentor than the program. Um, from my experience, um, I think it's really important to be working with, with a with a professor that you get along with and that you can you know you can work with. So paying attention to um, the research group that you're joining, what were their last um, papers, what are their current research projects, how big is the lab, does the PI tend to be hands-on or hands-off, and what do you feel more comfortable with, what is the 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 work structure, do you usually meet very often? Do you, um, does that person prefer to meet uh, on, a, on a neat case-by-case uh, -case basis? Those types of things um, are sometimes more important than, than what the program is. Because at least from, from my perspective, most of the graduate programs in, in plant pathology at um, universities in the US are excellent. And all of them can give you really good training. But in the end, you're going to spend most of your time uh, researching and, and working on a project. So it's really important that the person that you're working with, that you're compatible with that person and that you get along well. And, and your graduate advisor was Neil McRoberts. Is that correct? And, yeah. and Neil recently contacted me and, and promised that I was in for a treat in, in having this conversation with you. So um, it seems as though uh, you had a really uh, great relationship with your, your graduate advisor. And I think that's reflected in your research as well. Yeah, um, I remember the first the first time I interviewed with Neil, to be honest, like I had read his his last publications and I wasn't completely understanding everything on them, but kind of the the ideas that he had for the lab and, and the way he saw his contribution to, to plant pathology, I really related to that. And, and we had a conversation. That's another thing that I would recommend, like trying to reach out and, and speak with the person that, that, that you want to work with. 
because you sometimes get these intuitions or instant feelings that things are probably going to go well. So that was what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great advice. Um, and when you were working in um, in in Neil's lab at UC Davis, um, your your UC Davis colleagues referred to your your lab as a, a dry lab. Um, what what does that mean? And and what was that like for you? <laughs> yeah. So we were called a dry lab because literally, like if you went up to our lab on the fifth floor at the Department of Time Pathology at UC Davis, it was an office. Like we only had um, chairs, tables, and people working on computers all day long. So that was one of the first things that, that Neil told me, like the thing you need to know if you're joining this lab is that you're never going to touch like a pipette or or anything related that, that people usually think about when they think about a lab. So they came up with this term like, oh yeah, no, you, you're a dry lab. And, and it was sometimes a bit um, weird because we were the only lab at the time that only did computer work. So most of my, my friends were either in a wet lab or in the field. And we were kind of these people in, in the middle um, that just brought their computer everywhere they went. And, and I imagine the, the lab safety protocols, um, what, what not to wear in particular, shorts or sandals, um, probably didn't apply. Yeah, that was something that, that my colleagues um, used to say, like, but you can wear anything you want. We can't, <laughs> although it was freezing. So you better, like, have warm clothes. <laughs> So, so you, um, at least part of your graduate program um, happened during the early stages of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and in particular during the lockdown. How did that impact your, your development and your research? Actually, so by the time COVID um, started in, in California, I was living in Riverside because I moved um, on the third year of my program, I moved down from David from UC Davis to UC Riverside because of personal reasons and because I was working with a professor there that um, was part of my PhD committee. And it was also a way of being closer to the part of the citrus industry in the state. So by the time COVID um, came, I was working in, a, in an office where they had um, saved me a spot at UC Riverside in the School of Public Policy. And I as most people probably, I was told on a Saturday morning, like, come to the building, you need to pick up your stuff because we're, we're closing the university down and, and you're going to have to move everything home. So I set up my desk um, at home in my bedroom, and that's where I spent the last year of my PhD program. And it was weird because on top of being like COVID isolated, I hadn't met a lot of people at Riverside and there was no opportunity to meet anyone the year that I had left. So I basically focused on, on working and that was probably why I was able to finish my dissertation on time. But it's true that it was tiring to be at home all the time. One of the things, um, maybe to, to counteract that, like one of the things that we came up with doing at the Department of Plant Pathology at UC Davis was doing virtual happy hours. 
So we used to, we have a tradition um, where we do happy hour every Friday in the evening, the, the plant pathology graduate students. And we realized that we weren't going to be able to do that in person, but we started um, joining on Zoom. And that helped a bit going, especially through the first months of lockdown. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what you're describing, I think, really rings true to, to me and to, to many uh, as, as we've migrated through this very difficult time. And I, I do reflect on uh, graduate students, um, particularly students that started during the pandemic, where that, that opportunity to develop that cohort was was somewhat limited. Um, it uh, it's it's been it's been difficult for all of us, I think, to, to navigate. And I appreciate you reflecting a little bit on on how that's impacted your your research. Yeah. Um, I I also your your comment about that productivity uh, component that um, I think a lot of us were very compelled to write during the early days of that that lockdown. Um, we've seen a lot of publications come out. I think um, as a result of having that 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 space and time to focus on on maybe data sets that we've had um, piling up for a while. Yeah. And, and hopefully the worst of that's behind all of us and um, we'll, we'll get back to the, the new normal, whatever, whatever that means. Yeah. So you, you've touched a little bit on your research um, and mentioned uh, citrus in, in particular, and much of your graduate research was on HLB. I guess let's start with the host plant, where where is citrus grown, um, both in the U.S. And, and around the world? And what do you see as some of the most important threats to citrus production? So citrus are, it's a, a genus that has many different species, especially because it's been cultivated for many years. So there are many hybrids. But the, maybe the most cultivated species are oranges, and then there are like mandarins, tangerines, and then lemons, followed by um, pomelos and grapefruits. And they are, in the U.S., they are mainly grown in four states, but especially in, in California, where most of the fresh citrus is grown um, here Citrus production in California is focused on the Central Valley in, in Tulare and Kern County, but there's also there's citrus all the way down to Imperial Valley, uh, Riverside, San Bernardino, and San Diego. And um, as I said, like most of citrus production in California is for the fresh market. So it's the oranges or, or tangerines that you would buy in the supermarket and eat fresh. And then Florida used to be the main um, citrus producing state in the US and their production was focused on the juice market. And there's also some citrus production in Texas, mainly grapefruit and in Arizona. And elsewhere in the world, um, China is the main citrus producer uh, by far. I think it's about 25% um, of, it produces about 25% of um, citrus worldwide. But citrus are also grown in other parts of Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, then in the Mediterranean area, Spain is, a, is an important uh, producer of citrus. Also um, Italy and the, the countries in the north of Africa, Morocco um, and Egypt. 
And then South Africa is also a citrus producer. And in the American continents, Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil are also important producers. So citrus are grown from Everywhere. subtropical, <laughs> yeah, from subtropical to Mediterranean climates. And Huanglong Bing, um, I guess, first of all, what, what is it? And how big of a deal is it? Well, actually, at the moment, it's considered the most destructive disease of citrus worldwide. It's an invasive disease um, that was originally um, described in um, us in Asia, um, the Asian type of HLB. So let's start from the beginning. Wanglumbing is a bacterial disease of citrus trees. It is associated uh, with a bacterium called um, Candidatus libebacter, and there are two species, Asiaticus and Africanus. And they're called Candidatus because Cox postulates have not been fulfilled. And both, both bacteria are transmitted by an insect vector. Um, the African type is transmitted by uh, Triosa erythrae, and the Asian type is transmitted by um, the Asian citrus psyllid Diaphorina citri. And it's that combination, um, the Asian citrus psyllid and Candidatus libebacter asiaticus, that has caused the worst impact on citrus production worldwide. Because HLB, well, the, the bacterium reproduces on the phloem of citrus trees. So um, it disrupts phloem distribution within the plant. Uh, the leaves develop a very characteristic uh, blotchy model symptom. And most importantly, the fruit become bitter, they don't mature uh, correctly, and they drop early. And the trees eventually die because there's no, until very recently, there wasn't any resistance to HLB in any of the most um, common citrus varieties. So it's been widely distributed in Southeast Asia and in China for many years where they have moved citrus production uh, to different areas to try to escape from the environmental conditions that favor the, the insect vector. So they were kind of managing and living with the disease. But then it was detected for the first time in Sao Paulo in 2004 in Brazil, and then in Florida in 2005. And there um, the vector was already present and it spread very quickly and it had a really destructive effect. So at the moment, it's, it's a major threat to other citrus growing areas. It's present in California, and I guess we'll talk more about that. But it's also present in Mexico, in Argentina. And for example, the, the entire Mediterranean region is very concerned that um, they might get an introduction anytime. Well, so focusing specifically on California, then what, what is the industry doing? To, to manage HLB? They have invested, uh, they have mounted a really extraordinary response uh, to the first introduction of HLB. So HLB was first detected in California in 2012, but the vector had already been there, the Asian citrus city, um, since 2008. So the uh, from 2009, the citrus industry had already um, decided to pass, um, and I'm not very familiar with California law, but they kind of put a piece of legislature that allowed them to form a program that is basically uh, funded by the growers 
but it's managed in a partnership with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. So they put together this program called the Citrus Pest and Disease Prevention Program, and it's now a division. But the growers were really on top of it. And by the time the disease was detected in 2012, they had already been trying to manage the vector. And what they, are, what they have been doing since 2012 is on the one, they define some strategic priorities. So they are trying surveying the, the main citrus producing areas, but also residential citrus in the state to try to detect the disease as early as possible and remove the infected trees so that they do not continue spreading inoculum. Uh, they are also, um, they have implemented uh, quarantines for the movement of plants and fruit in the state so that the disease or the vector do not travel with um, contaminated material. There's um, all the citrus industry was put under, like the citrus nurseries were put under um, under cover with mesh that do not allow the vector to, to come in. So when uh, a grower buys new plants, they are certified and um, to be free of the disease. And they are also um, controlled with insecticides so that they do not spread the vector. And then probably what, I focused more on my dissertation was uh, the part of the program where the growers are being asked to coordinate their insecticide treatments for the insect vector for the Asian citrus psyllid. So that um, if, because it was shown early in Brazil and in Florida that if all the growers in a region um, tried to apply the insecticide spray at the same time or within a closed window, it, the effect of knocking down the Asian citrus population was much greater, so they wouldn't continue spreading the disease to nearby properties. That, that's really fascinating, and, and, and we are all in this together. Um, this seems like um, a really good segue into some of the work that you've published recently. So I'm referring to your paper from earlier this year, published in the journal Ecology and Society, and called a collective action in the area-wide management of an invasive plant disease. You wrote in the abstract, area-wide management or AWM is a strategy for invasive plant pests and diseases in which management actions are coordinated across property boundaries to target the entire pest or pathogen population in an area. Because some people may benefit from the actions of others without bearing the costs but group level contributions are required to achieve effective control. AWM suffers from free riding, yet it has rarely been studied as a collective action problem. What is a collective action problem and why is this a relevant concept for plant disease management? So a collect collective action is needed anytime a group of people need to achieve a common goal. So you have um, collective action problems start to occur when you have a group of individuals that need to make contributions to achieve that goal. But at the same time, they can benefit from the efforts or the contributions of others, and they might be able to benefit without having to contribute. So there's this temptation to what 
to do what we call free riding. So, okay, I know if all of my neighbors are going to apply insecticide treatments against um, the Asian citrus psyllid, if I don't have that many ACP in my property, I might be able to benefit from the treatments of everyone else without having to treat myself. So I decide not to treat. And the problem comes that if enough people do that same reasoning and decide not to treat, in the end, the group might not achieve that common goal. And really, really simplified, this is a situation that comes many in many, many different aspects of um, our society. So you have, for example, a classic example of a collective action problem is where people need to manage a fishery. A group of uh, fishermen are um, exploiting a fishery and they, they know that they could all fish a bit more than it's maybe allowed because they would get more individual benefits. But at the same time, if everyone fishes, then the fishery might be like emptied and there wouldn't be any more resources. So these types of situations where there's what we call a public good or a common pool resource, something that can benefit a group of people that you cannot exclude others from benefit from benefiting from it, there's always this temptation to free ride. And over time, um, and it's been really studied by the social sciences, societies, groups of people have developed what are called institutions, so rules to manage these types of resources in common so that everyone can benefit, but it, they can be preserved. And what we did, um, and, and the, the sentences that you read in that paper, at some point, we tried to apply some of the research and the theories that had been developed in the social sciences to study collective action problems and how groups of people approach those types of problems. We realized that that was more or less the situation that citrus growers in California were facing. So we tried to apply some of those theories to the context of HLB management in California or the management of invasive species in general. And I have to say, like, we are not the first ones and we are not the only ones. Over the years, I think there, there are many, many researchers, not only in plant pathology, but also in wheat science or in entomology that have realized that we were missing a, a really vast literature on how to approach these problems that we can now try to bring to the field of plant pathology to improve the management of pests in general, not only plant diseases, but also insect pests and, and weeds. So, so you mentioned your move to UC Riverside um, during your, your PhD research uh, to work with a collaborator. Was that collaborator um, a plant pathologist? No, my dissertation committee were a plant pathologist, um, a political scientist, and an economist. If you tell me that you had your defense in a bar, <laughs> this, this program's going to end right now. <laughs> no, um, my defense was online. It was really like not a thing at all. <laughs> so, so sorry, you, you had a very um, diverse committee, many different disciplines represented. Could you talk a little bit about working in that interdisciplinary research? It, it's something that certainly funding agencies want to see. Um, academic institutions want to see that. Uh, many of us really believe that the way to, to push plant health 
to new levels is to work across disciplines. You you did this in real time. What was that like for you? Um, it was challenging. So I come from, as I said, like I came from a, an engineering and agronomy biology perspective, but I started to get interested in the social aspects of, of plant disease management and how regulations are or policies are designed to deal with plant health problems. And Neil was very, and I think this is a really important thing to have the person that you work for, if um, he or she acknowledges that this is valuable and that that you should push the boundaries, that's really important. Um, So I started like in the early um, months of my PhD, I started reading really diverse um, sources of literature, not only plant pathology, but I read like a couple books. I took a couple courses from other graduate programs and I started to find things that I could take from those um, different fields that I thought could be useful for my research. Then, yeah, so like being exposed to other points of view, I think it's, it's very important. It's also true that you get sometimes overwhelmed with ideas and you're not sure how to make them into a concrete dissertation that you need to present to your um, qualifying exam committee. So it took me a while to put together what my dissertation was going to be. But then I think having a committee with two people from other disciplines and really participating in in the meetings from other groups, going even if I was only auditing to other courses, you start to find common points. And when you get sufficiently familiar with the terminology and the concepts and the theories and how research is designed in other disciplines, you at some point you reach a, a level where you can start to have a real conversation with with people from other disciplines where you start to understand each other and do constructive research so i would say it's it's challenging but it can be done it's also true that you're you're going to have to realize that you're always going to be somewhere in between like i'm i'm not sure i consider myself a real plant pathologist or an epidemiologist anymore and I'm not a social scientist, but I think um, being able to work somewhere in between is also um, another career option. Yes, it, it strikes me that um, you're really describing a degree of professional vulnerability that, that we have yeah. to be open and vulnerable to to really work in that space. Um, you mentioned the the terminology, and that's that's something that often trips me up uh, as I explore other, uh, even related fields of study. That the terminology and sometimes the the way we frame problems, the way we think about problems, can be difficult or different. And what you're telling us is that it's worth that pain to work through that. Yeah, I think because I think if if many people, you're only going to make a really small contribution, but if many people start like bringing some of those ideas, and this is done all the time in all disciplines, you can really start um, discovering new 
approaches or, or new solutions to things. So I would say it's worth exploring. <laughs> no, that's, that's fantastic advice. Tell us a bit about what you're doing now. So when I came back to, to Europe, I was looking for options to uh, work um, in plant health policy. But the way it is handled um, in the European Union and some of the countries is you really have to be a civil servant to be part of the equivalent of the USDA APHIS or the CDFA. So I realized that working in plant health policy from a public perspective was not going to be um, easy. And then this opportunity came, came up um, to work for a consultancy company called uh, Prosper and Partners that is based in Brussels and thus policy, um, thus policy analysis for associations in um, the fields of agriculture and, and food industry. So this was another way of interacting with policy and trying to bring science um, to policy and adapt um, policy design to the realities of the agricultural sector but from a private perspective. So um, a lot of what I'm doing at the moment, uh, working as a consultant for, for Prospero is uh, analyzing the legislative proposals from the European Union in some uh, fields like um, the common agricultural policy or um, legislation on fertilizers or plant protection products and trying to analyze it very carefully and see the implications that that proposal would have for the industry. So one of our clients is um, the European Biostimulants Industry Council. And there we um, try to defend the interests of the plant biostimulants industry in front of the EU institutions. That's wonderful. And it, it seems like a really logical and impactful extension of the work that you started as a grad student. Yeah, instead of um, working on plant health policy, I'm now working on other aspects of agricultural policy. So at some point into the future, I hope to be able to merge the different interests. But um, yeah, I feel like some of the training that I received in, in grad school, not only being able to like understand how to frame a research problem and how to do what type of analysis would be needed, but also how that is, how it connects with the realities and the different interests of, of the different stakeholders. All that gave me um, adequate training for my current job. It sounds really exciting and I can't wait to see where you take this next. Um, Clearly, you've we'll got see. a really bright <laughs> career ahead and um, deeply appreciate your perspectives. Sure. <laughs> um, before we go, do you have any last comments for, for our listeners? Uh, no, just that I'm looking forward to this entire season two of Plantopia. <laughs> oh, that, that's a great plug. Thank you so much. <laughs> sure. I <laughs> uh, really appreciate you being here today, Sarah. Thanks. So we just heard from Dr. Sara Garcia Figuera, a plant pathologist working for Prospero and Partners, uh, consulting on agribusiness issues across Europe and the U.S. I'm Jim Bradeen, the host of the Plantopia podcast, a production of the American Phytopathological Society. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will see you next episode.